Father, I just thank you, Jesus, that you, you've given us the, the power to hear what you say to us. Jesus, you would say, if you have ears to hear, let them hear. And this morning, we just want to be a people with ears to hear and eyes to see. Father, I just pray over every, every person in the room right now. Holy Spirit, touch our eyes. Touch our ears, Lord. Open us up, God, to see and hear you. I felt like what was so beautiful about what Betsy was doing as, as an intercessor, um, and I would say not just an intercessor, but a prophet. I love Jesus said of John the Baptist, you know, he's not just, the, not just a prophet, you know, he's like not a reed easily shaken in the wind. And Betsy, you carry a spirit of Elijah. You carry a spirit of John the Baptist. You're a forerunner. Um, I'm just so thankful to be in your life. It says at the end of Malachi chapter 4. That in the end times, in the latter days, the spirit of Elijah would come. And he'd bring the hearts of the fathers to the sons. And the hearts of the sons to the fathers. And we know that Jesus inaugurated the last days, didn't he? He said, if my body, he's speaking of him. He said, if the temple is going to come down, speaking of his own body, in three days it'd be rebuilt. It's like the, that ribbon on a groundbreaking project and you cut the ribbon and you take the, the shovel into the ground, right? The ticking time clock began, didn't it? Time is marching one way, isn't it? It's marching in one direction, right toward the face of Jesus coming again. We will see him split the sky. He will have his kingdom on earth. He will set up his rule in Jerusalem. It's going to be beautiful. Right now, we think of our stories. We think of the seeming insignificant cups of cold water. Matthew 25 says, if you've done this unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. Lord, when did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you in prison and visit you? He said, if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. We're looking in our world at institutions and all of the outward circumstances. And we want to be a part of the change. We want to be a part of a movement. And the Lord says, give out cups of cold water. And Betsy, that's what you're doing. He took your seemingly insignificant circumstance. You're just dust anyway, right? The only thing that makes us significant to begin with is that God breathed that breath of life into us. Am I right? Isn't that the most beautiful thing? The book of Ecclesiastes makes it so clear. It's like vanity of vanities. The whole idea of the book is that if God isn't judge of the whole earth, it's all insignificant and pointless. But the good news, the book ends, it says, fear God. 
because he's going to judge the entire earth. He's going to make everything wrong right. He's done it in Christ. We see it right now in Christ, but it's also unfolding in the earth. We get to partake of his heavenly nature right now, but we're going to walk it out in completion forever with him in eternity. We get to partake of the heavenly gift. That's the deposit of the Holy Spirit inside of us. So we have him. We have everything we need according to life and godliness. Isn't that beautiful? But we also have this tension and struggle that he's given us this opportunity to walk it out in this lifetime. You'll never have struggle in heaven. You have the opportunity, the privilege right now to battle it out, to wrestle through this life, to seek him, to seek his face. It's just, it's such a beautiful thing. So I was going to preach this morning on the tabernacle of David. And I think what I'll do is I will just take a a few things of what Betsy did. And I want to hopefully help you see in your Bible what God does in the, the parade of history. Jesus is, the, is marching. He's the Pied Piper in the parade of history. Jesus is the son of David. When you read the Bible, you see a lot of interesting images. Things that sometimes don't make any sense to us, especially in our modern mind. And, and sometimes frankly, didn't make sense to the Israelites and the Hebrews in their ancient mind either. At the end of Daniel, for me, the end of Daniel was incredibly dissatisfying. (laughs) Because here you have Daniel, this prophet, unlike any other prophet, he's in captivity. Think about it. No one has listened. All of Israel has fallen away. Now you have Daniel and a few other people who are actually faithful in exile. I mean, like, who wants that assignment? Jeremiah. (laughs) You know, I know we were talking to Jeremy Buchanan, like the Lord, uh, a couple Wednesdays ago, talking about, you know, the Lord's really helping me understand my name. It's like, yeah, you read through Jeremiah and you're like, God, send me Isaiah chapter six. I'll go. And then he's like, all right, Jeremiah, no one's listening. Good luck. Have fun. (laughs) Come on. It's insane. You're like, Lord, but why? Like, what is it all for? It all feels vain. So Daniel, he is this prophet that God sends uh, to speak to kings in the midst of Israel's exile. I want you to think about, you know, because sometimes we're so far removed from this stuff. It's really difficult to really perceive the totality of the, the Israelite exile. But you need to, I want you to think about, Job maybe is a good example on an individual level, okay? Job lost everything, everything except God. Israel, during the exile, you have to realize in their mind, they've lost everything and God. The temple's destroyed. Either Yahweh has failed them or he has left them. That's the mindset for so many, except for a few, a remnant, like Betsy mentioned. So it's a, a complete collapse in their mind. It's like, there's no going back. 
Actually, Jeremiah was told, hey, settle in. Build your houses, build your homes. We're not going back there right now. That whole promised land covenant thing and all that stuff. In fact, God, uh, in several different places, depending on how you read it, is like, I'm ready to divorce you, Israel, because you've been completely faithless. You've went away after other lovers. In fact, you've married the, the other gods, and, and this is what's happening. And that's, that's the collapse that Israel is facing. Yet, you see in Hosea, God says, like he said to them initially, he brings back. He's like, I've never left you. I'm never going to forsake you. Return to me with all of your heart. And we see that beginning, that process begin. And all I'm saying is we have these different enigmas. Daniel, the reason I mentioned him is because the Bible says that he understood enigmas. Yet even at the end of his lifetime, he receives a a dream and in a vision, he sees this unfolding of the, the parade of history. But it says that he's perplexed. And all he can do is pray because he doesn't really fully understand it. So my heart this morning was to kind of give us an idea of something about the tabernacle of David. I feel like the Lord has something completely different on his mind. And that's for you to understand that he is leading the march. He is leading the procession, the parade of history. And I'm going to give you a picture for it. But what you need to see is you see things like this. And this feels sometimes uh, in our Western rationalized mind, we think it's kind of odd. This is what we would call an object lesson. The Bible would call it prophecy. Why do you need that? You need that because you don't learn any other way. Everything in the world, God has designed it to speak to you. It's speaking to you something. Even if you just look at the pews, you know what the pews are telling me? This is a place to sit down. So God's designed it. He's speaking to us through spiritual, prophetic, natural means and metaphors. And we see that in the Bible. If there's somebody up, I have a couple of slides I want to pull up in a second. If you guys can get ready to pull up those, uh, we'll go into that. But before we get to that, I want to give you a little bit of an idea of again, what I'm talking about is God giving you a visualized object lesson that speaks about a prophetic or, or spiritual reality. Is that fair? Does this make sense? So Betsy, for us today, kind of visualized, gave us a visualization of her story for, uh, for what, I don't know, the last couple of years, right? Of how she's gone through a series of trials. Those series of trials have led to series of victory and you're still going through it. And I think it's a really good object lesson, frankly, for what we're experiencing, not just temporarily, but I'm talking to you about the actual parade of history is a story where God's church goes through trials. Jesus himself was driven by the spirit into the wilderness to face the devil. You're like, okay, I'm like good with, you know, the, the money, health, and wealth stuff. I don't know about the driven by the spirit into the wilderness stuff. In some sense right now, the entire earth is in a stage of spiritual wilderness. Now you might be in seasons and cycles of wilderness 
where you're oriented, then you're disoriented, you're reoriented. God is, he has seasons and cycles for you. The earth has seasons and cycles as well. Someone that I recently listened to said, sometimes there's years when nothing happens, decades when nothing happens. And then there's months when decades happen. We're in a season right now where you're seeing time accelerated at a rapid pace. And God's preparing the church. That's us. He's preparing King's church to set our what is it? To set our face like flint, that we would be immovable regardless of the challenge and suffering. And he's so kind to give us these object lessons, and he did it for Israel too. One of those object lessons was the tabernacle of Moses. Okay? I'm not going to go into like teaching on these things, but I want you to begin, hopefully, as you're reading through the Bible, to see what he's actually doing is giving you pictures to help understand who he is and what he's doing in the earth. Is that helpful? You probably already know that, right? So if we can get a, that picture up of the tabernacle of Moses, um, as soon as we can get that, we'll keep going. There we go. So there's the tabernacle of Moses. So God had props. I just want to validate Betsy's ministry this morning. God had props. Somebody stand up. Somebody. I don't care who you are. Where, where are you? Linda, welcome. You're an object lesson. You're a fleshly prop. God wants to fill you, use you, and put you on display as a message in the earth. It's not enough to have a prophetic word. You need to be a prophetic word. Amen? All right, this is a prophetic word, the tabernacle. I'm not going to go into all the details. There's people who could do it way better than I could. But every kind of layer you see, and, and, and really before this, I didn't have, I wish I could. Before you even get to Moses' tabernacle, so what did Moses, where did Moses meet with God before the tabernacle? Jeremy, somebody? Tent of meeting. Who remembers what, what was in the tent of meeting? Anybody? It's a trick question. Moses. There's no Ark of the Covenant. There's no uh, brazen laver. There's no uh, golden candle stand. God is speaking with Moses face to face. And it's a picture. All right, he's starting something. He's inaugurating a timeline. These, these are things that are happening. What we see throughout that timeline is that God continues to speak. He sets up a structure to tell a story. And that story gives us a lot of details about who he is and what he's doing. So that story ends up leading to the tabernacle. We end up having access. It talks about priests, the Levites. He gives them a, this is a really important part. He gives a family, a family, the family of Abraham, yes, but families within the family, 12 specifically, and then there's 12 apostles. I mean, all of this is really important. There's a family within the family who has priestly duties, and they end up, one of them, right, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, where ultimately, right, God, you know, had Moses build the Ark of the Covenant, which, if you aren't aware, is God's representative throne on earth. The mercy seat, right? The idea is that Yahweh's sitting on this. The Bible talks about him speaking, right, to Moses from between the cherubim. I mean, think about it like this. It's a gateway, all right? Before I... Outside the gate, right? We just think like, okay, outside the gate. Then I come in and it's like a little closer to heaven. I clean myself up because if I get too close, I'm going to die because I, I got stuff on me that doesn't cooperate with heaven. 
So I get closer, I get cleaned up, I maybe do a sacrifice, not because I necessarily need redemption from sins or anything particularly. Some of the sacrifices were just saying, hey, God, I'm really thankful that you're in my life. Some of those sacrifices were actually really just kind of to, to make sure the sacred space was prepared. Like, hey, this is holy ground. I want to make sure that I'm treating it right. So then the, you see, you can kind of see the, bron uh, the brazen laver. There's a cleansing process, process that goes on. And then, of course, there's the curtain. Now, what you have in there is you have images and pictures. They're all object lessons. Part of the point is this. You're not just in Kansas anymore, Toto. Okay? So <clears throat> you see even the, the, the candlestick has eyes all over it. There's a reason for that. It's like you're walking past. Of course, it's got the fire on it. And it's, it, anyways, there's so many things. But the eyes on it represent the eye of the Lord. Um, later, Jesus, he speaks in, I believe it's uh, Luke 12, you know, the eye is the lamp of the body. What is he talking about? He's like, dude, you're a candlestick. Get your eyes right. Okay. So in Zechariah, it talks about eyes going to and cross, uh, uh, across the earth. So anyways, all of this stuff is like we're entering into, God is speaking to us about his kingdom, his domain, where he lives and what it's actually Scholars call it like the axis mundi. It's this touchstone where heaven touches earth. Now, before you get to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, what you really need to see is Eden is the true tabernacle on earth. But you guys know it and I know it that we fell and, and we lost access to Eden. So then God starts meeting us in tents. Tabernacle means tent. Megan had like visions of tents, um, I want to say in 2018. What's my time? We're good. So all of this is pointing. Again, I'm not going to be able to cover it all. I want to just give you a taste, though. It's pointing to a godly reality. Ultimately, that God wants to tent, tabernacle with men. That's the point. And, and, and you guys know this as well. You know, Paul talks about this in the New Testament. Your body is a temple. It's a tabernacle. But I mean, like, if you really start to consider this stuff, like, it's the real deal. Like, you really are made to carry the presence of God. So, like I said, this whole system begins, the, the temple or the tabernacle, Moses' tabernacle complex, it begins showing us how God desires a family to worship him in a particular way. Someone else yell out, uh, you know, wh why did Moses, uh, what did God tell Moses to do when they left Egypt? Why were they going into the wilderness, into the places of trial? What was the point? Freedom, because God had promised land. Those were, those were really secondary things. The, the primary, so that they could worship me. The whole point, think of worship as this uh, communal, relational element where God speaks and lives with you face to face. He wanted to do it with a family. Uh, Brad, what's King's Church? What's our first mission statement? We have three. Worshiping family. We didn't just put this together. This isn't a King's Church mission statement. Do you understand? Okay. So God wants to commune. He wants a communal family who is in operation. We have something to do. And it looks like something. He didn't just create you as a spirit. He gave you a body so that you could outwork stuff in your life and be in a prophetic picture, an example of something. So bring, bring up the... Um, all right, we'll just pause right there. Let me give you a really brief, super quick summary, uh, a history lesson, right? 
<laughs> so here's what happens is Moses uh, develops, we get the tabernacle system. Um, Israel is faithful with it uh, for a brief period of time. It's kind of, of course, the story in the Old Testament is you, you see pockets of faithfulness, but then just massive rebellion. Just uh, ultimately the reason Malachi 4, and this is the promise and what's so powerful about Malachi 4 is that you never see a true connect between um, sons and their children or fathers and their children. They never continue to carry the torch. So like the fathers may build the foundation, but then the sons, this is what happens with David, okay? Even Solomon in all of his splendor, his entire kingdom just goes down in flames. He's worshiping other gods. He, he's, he's done everything wrong. So we see times where it's like God is setting up, there's revival, there's, there's covenant built, there's purpose, there's profit process, there's movement, things are moving forward, but then just incredible collapse and failure. And ultimately we see this all through the Old Testament leads up to the Messiah, who is going to be the answer, the one who finally brings things to completion and fruition, okay? So what happens is during this time, the tabernacle, of course, you, you get to the book of Judges. It says that the people, what they do is they have their own self-styled form of worship. They're, they have freedom. They do it their own way, where the spirit of the Lord is. But the thing is, is it wasn't real freedom. It was counterfeit freedom. It was actually rebellion. God had a particular order that he set up that mirrored, not just like his... Um, what would you say, like desire to be a control freak? No, this order represents his nature. This is just who God is. God doesn't change himself. He can't. He is himself. All right? So if he's showing us a way that he is, and he goes, I want you to display this order on the earth, it's not because he's a heavenly control freak who's just like, hey, I want to do it my way or the highway. He's like, there just isn't another way because I am that I am. Okay, so what happens is in the book of Judges, they do their own thing. They start setting up kind of their own little idols and different things. And they, it's kind of like superstitious really is what ends up happening. They just kind of do their own thing. Um, ultimately, even Gideon, uh, he kind of has this golden, golden ephod and even the story of Gideon. It's like all these stories of the judges, they're like really great, but then they fail, right? And it ultimately is leading up to the desire. You see like this priest king stuff come up. Even Gideon, who said, hey, I'm not going to be the king. Guess what he named his son? My dad is the king. <laughs> it's like, Gideon, come on, bud. So, but the whole idea, though, is like even these judges that God raises up to deliver Israel, and, and, and there's movement. There's movement forward. And we can look at that, and we go, that's valuable. That's important. God still used them. But it, it still, ultimately, there was these collapses that happened. So, and part of these collapses was that the tabernacle, this beautiful thing that God gave Israel to give them a way to connect with him, it gets completely, uh, like, um, not just immobilized, because this is actually a movable tent, right? They're, they're, they're on the go. They, they pack it up. They move. They worship. What happens is it all gets collapsed and lost and broke, and, th and then it gets, you know, the Philistines and stuff. Fast forward. And you get to like a little bit, you know, like in the book of Samuel, um, they set up the tabernacle in Shiloh. And it's this place where, man, this is just beauty. God's presence is here. We're able to connect and worship God in his presence. It's like, it's like meeting with him face to face. But in Psalm, look, let's read this real quick. Where am I at? I'm good. In Psalm 78, 
verse 56. It says, yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. Their worship was, was off. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. Um, where does it say it? It mentions Shiloh. Yeah, here it is, verse 60. For he's, he forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind. So what you have is you have God's tent, this place that God set up, this object lesson. It's been destroyed. And we know that this, is, this happens, right? 70 AD, the whole temple gets destroyed. Jesus prophesied it. He's like, I know he's talking about my body, but I'm talking about this thing too. Like, you're going to end up in this massive place of disorientation again. And I want you to see like these were object lessons leading to a different reality where eventually you will be the tabernacle. My church, my people, my body will carry my presence and they'll tab tabernacle with me on earth. But again, I can't cover it all. But what I want you to see is, look, 2 Samuel 6, you have David after, again, after everything at Shiloh has kind of fallen apart, David knows this, and, and this is really God's point, too, is because you were mentioning division. All of Israel is divided. They're all just doing their own thing. Hey, we'll worship at Shiloh. Shiloh is the real place where we really should worship. That's like this inaugural place that our, fan, our ancestors went. And some people were like, no, 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 we'll go over here. We'll go to these other Ebenezers that have been set up. These, uh, another word for Ebenezer would be like a cairn, those little piles of stones that get set up. They're markers. Like, we'll go to this other place. That was where, you know, Ruth died or just different stuff. And they're setting up, just they're just doing it disoriented. They have no order. And they're just frankly doing it their own way. And David's like, this isn't, it's not really, I mean, it's God is more than it is David. But what ends up happening is God is like, I need to unify my people, bring them to, into this place of godly order. And that godly order isn't meant to be a burden on them. It's actually an extension of my nature and who I am. And that's where you find real freedom. Does that make sense? All right, so that's, what's, that's what David is doing in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, is he's bringing the ark to Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, which is God's mercy seat. It's his presence on earth. That's what you need to know. Heaven on earth, right? The Lord's Prayer. So it says in verse 16, As the Ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in, in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. Can you guys go ahead and put up on here the picture of the tent of David? So there we go. That's the tabernacle of David. So I know I said Moses was in the tent earlier, but we know, again, he wasn't there alone before Moses was there. God was there. So what we have here is the tabernacle of David. Now, the tabernacle of David, there is no veil. Okay, you have free access. David, what ends up happening in the actual tabernacle of David is the order of worship that David sets up is, I love this, is he sets up 288 musicians, 24 families of 12. They go in rotation day and night for 30 years, day and night. They're worshiping in front of the ark with no veil. 
no veil. This is a prophetic word picture, object lesson pointing to the moment when that veil would be torn at the, when Jesus dies on the cross and we can go boldly, like it says in Hebrews, to the throne of grace. You're looking at the throne of grace. And I, the reason I wanted to bring this up, and Brad and I have been talking this, this is just huge on my heart. I, I, the, like you, wanna, you want me to nerd out? Let's start talking about the dwelling place of God. I mean, to even think about it. And that's ultimately what God says to David. He's like, uh, am I a man that I can live in a tent? He's like, David's like, here I am. I live in houses of cedar. Look up, everyone, look up. You live in a house of cedar. And God go, David's like, I live in a house of cedar, but God is living in a tent. I got to build God a house. David gets a word from the prophet Nathan. The prophet Nathan says, go ahead and do whatever's in your heart to do. In the middle of the night, Nathan gets a little bit of a prophetic redirect. Sorry, Nathan, we're going to do something different. Actually, I need you to go tell David, I'm going to build him a house. So God sets up something else. He gives us another object lesson. Can we pull up the slide where it says King... Um, Kingdom rule, there we go. God sets up something in David. It's a continuation of the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. It is a continuation of that, but in David's time period, something else is established. And we see, again, God's plan marching on in the parade of history. So David is bringing this ark. He's dancing before it. Jesus is the son of David, my friends. If your picture of Jesus is like a pastel kind of, well, bless you, Jesus. No, Jesus is the one who dances in front of the ark of his father, marching in the parade of history, leading the presence before the people, worshiping. Jesus, listen, Jesus is the chief choir director of heaven. We give Satan too much here. Well, Lucifer was the choir. Listen, okay. Jesus is the son of David. He set this up. What he set up in David were two concepts that you need to understand. He set up kingdom rule and kingdom worship. Kingdom rule and kingdom worship. All right, so what we have is we have kingly service. That's gonna be something like the way that God orders the earth. You're gonna see that in like, uh, again, the Bible says like when God is in charge over the nation, the people are at peace. So that means that you could be involved in godly ways in, in the earth, in politics. I've put them in the world, but not of the world, right? Now you can obviously go off in a, in a world, weird place. That's not what I'm saying. Hear the nuance in this. But there is places where God wants to set up his order on the earth. And the primary way he did that is not by us, like, gaining the political realm. The primary way is by us establishing his kingdom on the earth. And he does it like this. He does it by a kingdom of priests who walk in his kingdom rule, that's kingly service, ordering out, orchestrating his justice, his ethics, his morality. Okay? The second part of that is his kingdom worship, the worship order of heaven. 
What will you see there is that's going to be the arts, the, the expression of God through emotion, the beauty of God in artwork displayed, all of these things as an object lesson pointing to. Do you know that it is the kingdom of God that burst out in the earth with all of the beautiful artwork of the, the, uh, the Renaissance period? And all of these things were outworkings of people who had caught a vision of the beauty of God and displayed it in the earth as object lessons. Lessons for us to learn from. And you see that. You see it in the, even in the temple complex. They had cherubim. And ultimately, you get to Solomon's temple. Put Solomon's temple up on the screen. I got five minutes. I'm going to be able to do this. It's going to be awesome. It's going to get there. So Solomon's temple. I mean, look at the extravagance. David had a little tent. Solomon had a mega church. Now, I'm not bashing Solomon's temple because what God was showing and doing is this is what happens. Where the ark is, there is prosperity. Where the presence is, there is growth and extravagance. There is beauty beyond compare. The entire room is covered and layered in gold. There's 30-foot cherubim sitting next to the ark. You're walking in there as a little bitty you know, dust dwelling priest and you come in there and you're suddenly like, Toto, I'm not in Kansas anymore. There's beings in this place that have eyes all over them. That is what is, this is meant to bring about certain feelings. It's impressive. All right. I think I'm going to do it. I think it's going to happen. Amos 9-11. So, Solomon, we know Solomon had this temple. It was wonderful. I want you to also understand, you know that it was destroyed. This was destroyed during the exile, but it was rebuilt, Ezra and Nehemiah, during the time of Cyrus the king. Cyrus the king gives a decree. Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Zechariah, they begin to work on the ark. They start the work. The work gets delayed. In the book of, uh, of Haggai, Haggai begins to say, guys, it's time to start again. Build the house. I know you've been delayed. I know you've been weary with well-doing. And it hasn't been, it's been hard. You've been going through seasons of trial. You know, you come in, you want to provide for your own family. You can hardly provide for your f- own family. It's like this. He says to, to Haggai, he goes, the people right now, they're concerned in building their own house while my own house is in ruins. Suddenly, God's concerned about his house. He told David, who, like, hey, I can't even fit in a house. But no, no, God decided this is how it's going to happen. First, I need you to understand, I am going to build a house. But before I do that, I'm going to establish the reign of the Messiah on the earth. I'm going to come to the earth, be that prophetic picture, object lesson in the flesh, the incarnation, Jesus, a walking prophetic word, God in the flesh. And I'm going to come As a man in the line of David, Jesus is a psalmist in the line of David. People. Okay. So we have a prophetic word. We have destruction that's coming to Israel. In Amos chapter 9, Amos gets a prophetic word that later on gets repeated in the book of Acts. When you see this stuff, guys, you have to understand these are hyperlinks that God has put in the Bible for us to go back and read the story and the history of our fathers so we can get oriented in the timeline and the parade and the march of history so you can know where are we now? What are we building? How are we building the house? He wants to restore the tabernacle of David. He is doing it. 
So that's what you have right here. So the tabernacle of David. So you got, uh, again, the, uh, what happens is the Sol Solomon's temple gets destroyed. It never gets rebuilt, uh, rebuilt to its same splendor. Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Zechariah, they come and rebuild the temple. But, you know, there was weeping and crying because it just wasn't quite like it used to be. And that's the temple that's still there when Jesus comes in his first coming. That temple gets destroyed in 70 AD. So there's this prophetic word, though, through the years that there's a restoration that's coming. It's Amos 9-11. It says, in that day, I will raise up the booth or the tabernacle of David that is fallen. I will repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old. That they may possess the remnant of Edom. That's like the, the Gentiles, all the other nations coming to the Lord. Who are called by my name. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. It talks about harvest. And then verse 14, it says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens. I will plant them in their land. Again, it's just going back and it's saying, hey, I'm, I haven't quit on this whole covenant thing. I know everything looks like ruins right now. But what he doesn't say is I'm going to restore the tabernacle of Solomon. He's like, how many of you guys know that song? I'm going back to the heart of worship. That's the tabernacle of David. I'm not going to restore the, the exuberance. I'm not going to restore necessarily the, the extravagance. What I want is face to face, me and you in the tent. And that's ultimately where we end up in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, what you see is James stands up. They're arguing over whether or not Gentiles should be circumcised to be saved. And then they get stories and testimony from Paul and Barnabas. And they're like, listen, I know you guys think all the Jerusalem Jews, you think that they should be circumcised. But listen, they're already getting filled and baptized in the Holy Ghost. Like, seems a little late. I'm just saying. And then James comes and he kind of confirms it. He goes, oh, yeah. Restoring hearts of the fathers, Amos chapter 9. He goes, this is what Amos prophesied. He goes, um, God said that he'd rebuild the tabernacle of David. And you're like, what the heck does that have to do with anything? Go back to the slide, kingdom rule and kingdom worship. It has to do with Jesus coming on the earth and establishing a kingdom where every tribe, nation, and tongue will bow to him. That's part of it. So every tribe suddenly, where previously they didn't have access Ultimately, primarily, initially from the fall. And God begins to reestablish that access by a people called Israel, by a man named Abraham, by another man named Moses. And it goes on down the line. None of these men and women were able to do it completely until ultimately there's one man in the line. He's the, he's the this is funny. He, Je, David, it says, is, the, is the, uh, the, the stump of Jesse. It says, Jesus is the root of David. <laughs> One man in the line of David named Jesus, he brings everyone in to the tabernacle. But he doesn't just bring them in to do nothing. He brings them in for kingdom worship and priestly service. And I want to argue that what we're going to see, and I didn't have time today, but in Revelation 4 and 5, you see the priestly order of worship in heaven. And it's round the clock, day and night, situated, fixated on the throne of grace. Angels are saying, holy, holy, holy. Every tribe, nation, and language bow to the lamb. 
This is what's happening. This is the parade of history. It's going to be this day. And what I believe is that the tabernacle of David was a picture for us on earth for kingly service and priestly service. And the Lord wants us to operate not simply in kingly service, but in that number two part of our mission statement here at King's Church, that house of prayer. I promise you, this is not simply some man-made idea. This is ultimately to move the parade of history on, to partner with him in his ordained intercessory role as the intercessor and great high priest in the heavenlies right now. And we get to partner with him that, in that. So we're seeing that he had 20, 288 worshipers, Lydia, 288 families. Each team had 12 people on it. Round the clock, day and night in front of the Ark of the Covenant. So that's the message, guys. I hope that just gives you like a taste of like, this is what God's doing. He is raising up a people, a kingly and priestly people to establish his rule and reign on the earth, but also his, his order of worship. And he's, he does it in these incredible ways. And we get to see it through these pictures, kind of like what Betty did, Betsy did uh, for us this morning giving us these object lessons. We'll get into some of that more in the future. I know we will, um, but let's just end service right now and just pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for this morning. I thank you, God, that you take all of the pieces uh, that are out there, that you, know, you pull it all together for us. Holy Spirit, your word says that you need, we need no man to teach us for you will teach us. God, I pray this morning that just something of you lands in our hearts today. And that we can operate as your king priests on the earth and see you, Jesus, the son of David, dancing before the ark of history, parading through the, through the, through the timeline. In Jesus' name, amen.